Well, this morning, we uh, continue our study of the uh, book of Hebrews as we come uh, to chapter 3. Now, the first thing that we need to see is how the last half of chapter 2 provides a bridge to what follows in chapters 3, 4, and 5. Now, hopefully you remember the focus of the last half of Hebrews 2. It was on the solidarity of Jesus with man. Through the incarnation, Jesus became one of us. Jesus shared the human experience, even to the point of death, which enabled him to pay for the penalty of our sin, bring us into God's family, and deliver us from the fear of death and the tyranny of the devil. Now, what is the primary message in this section? Simply this. God's child is never alone. In Jesus, we have a big brother who is always with us, a champion who will always fight for us, and a high priest who shares and understands our weaknesses, vulnerabilities, and frailties. Now, in the last two verses of chapter 2, the writer emphasizes the two qualities of Jesus which characterize His ministry as a high priest. Jesus is both a what? Merciful, we saw, and a faithful high priest. Through His sufferings as a man, Jesus gained great empathy for mankind's frailties, making him a merciful high priest. Through his testings as a man, Jesus demonstrated his faithfulness toward God and us, uh, becoming a faithful high priest. Now, as we move into chapter 3, the writer more fully develops these two qualities of Jesus, but in inverse order. In chapter 3, Through chapter 4, verse 14, the emphasis is on Jesus as our faithful high priest. This section also includes the second of the five warnings that we find in the book of Hebrews. Uh, This particular warning will deal with doubting and disbelieving God's Word, which can lead to a hard heart towards God. Beginning at chapter 4, verse 15, and going all the way through chapter 5, verse 10, the emphasis will be on Jesus as a merciful high priest. Now, this morning, we will only have time to focus on uh, chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. I hope you picked up a copy of the sermon notes as you came in, and we will only have time to deal with that first side of the uh, sermon notes. So, open your Bibles to Hebrews 3, if you have not already done so. And follow with me as I read verses 1 through 6, which we will look at today. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. He was faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses also was in all his house. 
For he has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses by just so much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken later. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. First notice the key word. In this passage, you'll find that word house used seven times. And in these verses, it refers to God's people who are God's household. Uh, I think of 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 7 that reads, You yourself, speaking of uh, us individually as members uh, of the church, members of Christ's body, it says, You yourselves are like living stones, and you're being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So the word house in these verses does not refer to a material building uh, like the sanctuary in which we sit uh, to worship God. It refers to God's people who are God's household. And then also notice, just an introduction, uh, the description that he gives of believers, how he describes an authentic believer in verse 1. Notice he says, first, they are what? Holy brethren. So believers are those whose lives have been transformed by the grace of God. Believers are those who have turned from their sin, from their selfishness and independence to serve a true and living God. When you are converted, your life is changed. If any man be in Christ, he is what? A new creation. You know, the old things begin to pass away. All, behold, all things become new. But not only holy brethren, notice he says we're partakers of a heavenly calling. Believers are those who march to Jesus' beat instead of the rebellious cadence of the world. And Jesus emphasized this throughout his teachings. He says, if you love me, you will what? You will keep my commandments. And then a believer is also characterized by their confession. A believer's declare faith and commitment to Jesus. And I simply point that out to emphasize, folks, it really means something to be a believer. A believer is more than just professing uh, intellectual assent in who Jesus is and what he's done. It's an encounter with the living God where you're changed, never to be the same, where he creates new hungers, new thirsts, new direction, new appetites in your heart and in your life. Now, look with me now at three truths that we can draw uh, from these six verses out of Hebrews 3. And the first truth is, Jesus' faithfulness is to be the focus of my life. Jesus' faithfulness is to be the focus of of my life. Look again at verses 1 and 2. He says, Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus. And I would encourage you to circle that little phrase, consider Jesus. The apostle and high priest of our confession, he was faithful. He was faithful. In the Greek text, the word translated consider 
literally means to perceive down or to probe below the surface. It means to think very deeply. And the writer is saying, as believers, we are to fix our attention on the faithfulness of Jesus as the apostle, the one who was sent from God to be our high priest. Now, why? Why are we to fix our attention on the faithfulness of Christ, that particular aspect of His life and His character and His ministry? Well, I don't believe the answer is difficult to see. It's in order to learn, understand, and embrace its meaning in our lives, realizing that the faithfulness of Jesus is the basis for our fidelity with God. And it's through His faithfulness to us that we're able to be more than conquerors through Christ as we do cry to Him and as He runs to us to give aid in our time of need. Now, this kind of focus uh, requires three things, and you'll see them there in your notes. And the first one is desire. If we're truly going to fix our attention on the faithfulness of Jesus, not only to, 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 to learn it, but to understand it and to embrace its meaning for our lives, it's going to require desire. I love Psalm 27, uh, verse 4. This is the kind of desire we're talking about. Uh, King David is writing, and he says, one thing. And I like that. One thing, he says. He says, this is the primary focus of my life. This is my greatest passion and pursuit. Yes, we're involved in many other things in life, but David says, but this is the one thing that is most important to me. And he says, I have asked from the Lord that I shall seek that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in His temple. And that word meditate is so important. And, and it's very similar to that word consider that we've been looking at in Hebrews 3, verse, verse 1 and 2. That word meditate means not just simply to reflect on God's truth, but as I reflect upon it, to personalize it, to make it my own for the purpose of applying it, appropriating it, living it. And so as I come to God's Word, yes, I'm to learn it, but I'm to learn it to love it, and I'm to love it to live it. And until I live it, I have not really uh, honored God as He desires. But not only desire, it's going to require concentration. Look at uh, Colossians 3, verses 1 and 2. It says, If then you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things on the earth. How many times have I emphasized from this pulpit, and it's been one of the more significant emphasis in my pulpit ministry, that I've never known any believer that has ever begun to have any degree of victory until they got serious about their thought life, until they realize that the battle is going to be won or lost right here. And I can't just let my mind wander. I can't just let my mind fantasize on those things which are inappropriate, that are not pure, that are not pleasing to God. And that's why God created us so that we cannot think on two things at the same time. I have a choice. You know, Martin Luther uh, said, you can't stop the birds from flying over your head, but you can sure stop them from building a nest in your hair. And that's the point. The devil has the 
opportunity to throw those fiery darts to bring the temptation. And we can experience very vile thoughts, very ugly thoughts. But it's how do we respond to that? Do we nip it in the bud immediately, realizing that's not appropriate, and then turn our gaze, turn our hearts, our lives, our mind to those things which are true, those things are right, those things which are pure. So desire, concentration, and discipline. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. You know, I ran competitive track from the time I was in third grade all the way through college. And anybody who's participated in track knows that when you compete in the race, you get as light as you can, right? You don't wear ankle weights. You don't wear heavy shoes. Have you ever weighed track shoes? They feel like they're virtually nothing. And you normally wear these very silky type uh, uniforms that are very light. I'll never forget in high school, uh, we were... uh, approaching the state meet. I was up in uh, Maryland, and a, f- a close friend of mine, Joe Polio, he was, a, he was a Italian kid, very dark completed, had jet black hair, and he was just hairy all over. And he walked in uh, t- to get dressed for this uh, state meet, and we noticed he had shaved all of his hair off. And it was so odd looking. We said, Joe, what in the world are you doing? And uh, he had qualified for the 110 uh, high hurdles. And he said, well, I wanted to take every advantage. I didn't want there to be any air resistance due to that, all the hair that I got. And, uh, and, and that's how track people think. That's their mentality. They, they want to get down to the lightest they can so that there be no encumbrance. And, and that's what is being said here in Hebrews, in this analogy of running the race that's set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus. We have to lay aside the weights, the sin that so easily entangles us so that we can continue to follow and pursue our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So we are to fix our eyes on Jesus because, and don't miss this, because His faithfulness is the only thing that's going to get us through life's temptations, through life's trials, through life's adversities and sufferings. Jesus is our faithful high priest who runs to give aid when he hears one of his children cry. You know, seven times in the New Testament, you find the phrase, God is faithful, seven times. Now, these are not in your sermon notes. You may just want to, I would suggest you just uh, put this down on the side and uh, For everyone, it would be God is faithful to, and you just can get that last word down and maybe the reference. And this will bring great encouragement and comfort to your heart. So we're saying Jesus is a faithful high priest. We're to fix our attention on that aspect of Jesus as a faithful high priest, to, to learn it, to embrace its meaning for our lives, so that through His faithfulness, we can get through life's difficulties and trials And this is just a great encouragement to see just how faithful He is. First, God is faithful to pardon. God is faithful to pardon. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, He is what? Faithful and righteous 
to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Again, we have a faithful high priest. And even as believers, when we deny him, when we sin, when we fail, he's made payment for that sin so that we can cut. We don't have to hide from him. We can run to him knowing that we'll be met by love as long as we're honest and transparent. We'll be met by a God who will cleanse us from that guilt, will pardon that iniquity, and restore our intimacy with Him. But He's not only faithful to pardon, He's faithful to protect. God is faithful to protect. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 3. God is faithful to protect. 2 Thessalonians 3, 3. But the Lord is faithful, and He will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. That word protect in the Greek text was a military term. It meant to put a garrison of soldiers around in a, 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 a fort or a particular place where they were uh, guarding. And what a beautiful thought that God has literally surrounded the believer and, and He's protecting us, that He is that great warrior, that great champion that we saw in Hebrews 2 that fights for us. Third thing, God is faithful to promise. He's faithful to promise. Hebrews ten twenty three says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope. Well, talk a little bit about that later today, without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. God is faithful to promise. And and let me just remind you, especially if you're going through a time of great trial, of great pain and difficulty right now, I've walked with God now for 44 years. And I've learned in my life and in the lives of thousands of people I've had the opportunity to minister to and to counsel that when we go through suffering and difficulty, in the overwhelming majority of cases, God never bothers giving us an explanation. But what He does give is promises that we can hold on to, that get us through. And, and you know, you ask, well, why doesn't He explain why I'm going through? Because He wants to build trust. He wants you to put your faith in Him. Do we really believe He is a faithful high priest? that we can count on. And so, he doesn't need, he shouldn't have to give us an explanation. Do we believe he's good? Do we believe he's merciful? Do we believe he's too wise to make a mistake? Uh, well, then we need to hold on to those promises during those times. He's also faithful to perform, to perform what he promised. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 Verses 18 and 20. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 and 20. But as God is faithful, our word to you is not yes and no. For as many as may be the promises of God in Him, in Christ, they are what? Yes. In other words, God is a God of integrity. He will keep His word. He was true to His promises. The fifth thing, God is faithful to purify. God is faithful to purify. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 23 and 24. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who calls you, and he also will bring it to pass. He'll bring what to pass? Purity, your sanctification, your growth being transformed into the likeness of Jesus Christ. He will be faithful to complete that process in your life. The sixth thing, God is faithful to permit. 
He's faithful to permit. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. And this is a very meaningful verse for many of you right now. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is what? Faithful. Who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, that you may be able to endure it. I love the way the paraphrase, the message puts this verse. It says, no test or temptation that comes your way is beyond the course of what others have had to face. All you need to remember is that God will never let you down. He'll never let you be pushed past your limit. He'll always be there to help you come through it. Amen? And then the seventh statement about God being faithful is He's faithful to preserve. He's faithful to preserve. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. It says, Who shall also confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. So the fact that Jesus is faithful is the key to our fidelity as we put our trust in Him. Look now at the second truth. Not only is Jesus' faithfulness to be the focus of our lives, Jesus' faithfulness makes Him worthy of my trust more than any other person. Jesus' faithfulness makes Him worthy of my trust more than any other person. Read again with me verses 3 through 6a. It says, For he, Jesus, has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, by just so much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant, for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken later. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house, over his house. Now, you might ask, why the comparison to Moses? Uh, Since the writer has already clearly demonstrated the superiority of Christ over the angels. And I believe there are two fundamental answers why the writer felt it was important Uh, to compare Jesus with Moses. First, keep in mind that these Hebrew Christians were going through what? Severe Roman persecution. We've talked about that every week in this study. And they were struggling with the cost of following Christ. They were flirting with the notion of abandoning Christianity and returning to their old Judaism. So the writer knew it was important to contrast Moses the mediator of the Old Covenant, over against Jesus, the mediator of the New Covenant. He realized it was important for these Hebrew Christians to see that Jesus and the Christian life is superior. And he does that throughout the entire book. And it's not that Judaism was wrong, no. It's that Judaism was meant to lead a person to Jesus, the Messiah, and the Christian faith. Now, the second reason for bringing up Moses is that he was addressing Hebrew Christians. And you need to understand, this is sort of difficult for us to relate to, but in many of the Jewish traditions, uh, the testimony that God uh, spoke concerning Moses in Numbers 12, verses 7 and 8, 
many Jews used that uh, to show that Moses enjoyed a higher rank, a greater privilege than the angels uh, themselves. Uh, that passage reads, by the way, God speaking, my servant Moses, he is faithful in all my house. With him, I speak face to face, clearly and not in riddles. He sees the form of the Lord. So since many Jews believed Moses' faithfulness to God secured him a higher status than the angels, it was necessary for the writer to show that Jesus was not only superior to the angels as he did in chapters 1 and 2, but that he was superior also to Moses. Now, in verses 3 through 6, we discover that even though Moses and Jesus were both faithful in God's house, when you compare the two, you clearly see what? That Jesus is superior. And you see that comparison in your notes. And here's the first one. Moses was part of the house. Jesus was the builder. In other words, he's proving the superiority of Christ. And he says one of the proofs of that is yet Moses was part of the house, but Jesus was the builder. See, verse 3, notice, states that Jesus is worthy of more glory than Moses. Why? Because the builder of the house has more honor than the house. It's not difficult to see or understand. Look at the second comparison. Moses knew God personally. Yes, he did talk face-to-face with God. Yes, he saw the form of God as we just saw in Numbers. But Jesus was what God permanently. Moses knew God personally, but Jesus was God permanently. Verse 4 states that the builder of all things is God. Therefore, since the builder was Jesus, Jesus is what? God. In other words... In this comparison between Moses and Jesus, who do you think Moses encountered at the burning bush? Who do you think the Passover lamb represented? I mean, who do you think parted the Red Sea? Who do you think was the cloud by day and the fire by night, that Shekinah glory that led Moses through the wilderness? Who do you think gave Moses the Ten Commandments? Well, you know the answer. It was the pre-incarnate Jesus, the very Son of God. Therefore, who's greater, Moses or Jesus? Now, this brings us to the next point, which was really the climax of the writer's argument that Jesus is superior to Moses. Moses was a faithful servant in God's house, But Jesus was a faithful son over God's house. Look at uh, verses uh, 5 and 6 again. It says, Now Moses was faithful in all his house as a what? Servant. Then go down to verse 6. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house. See the contrast that's being made? Moses was a servant, but Jesus is the son. Moses was in the house... But Jesus is what? Over the house. And, the, and, and what this should do in our, for our lives is very significant. No one, no one has ever been more faithful. 
No one has been more trustworthy than Jesus. And therefore, no one is more worthy of your trust than Jesus. That's the point. Jesus is worthy of your trust, of you leaning on Him in every challenge, in every difficulty, in every adversity in life. This is why trusting God and obeying His Word is such a big deal with God. And we will see just how serious it is when we look at the verses that follow these verses. That second warning against doubting and disbelieving God's Word, which leads to hardness of heart. Now, bottom line, this is it. We don't have to make it complicated. Bottom line, what more could God ever do to secure your trust than what He's already done for you through Jesus Christ? That's the lesson. I mean, what more could you ask of God? What more could God do to secure your trust than what has already been done through Jesus Christ when He died on the cross, the Savior of the world, and rose from the dead as Lord of all? See, there is no greater way for me or you to dishonor God than when we fail to entrust our lives, our loved ones, and our circumstances to Jesus and rest in Him. And rest in Him. We'll see as we move forward, especially in chapter 4, the proof that you're really trusting is that you're resting. Trust produces rest. The greater the trust, the greater the rest. But we'll save that for chapter 4. No matter what you're going through at this time in your life, as God's spokesman, I'm here to tell you this morning, Jesus is worthy of your trust. And when you think about it, is there anyone better that you could trust in? Can you think of anyone else? that has a perfect track record like Jesus concerning faithfulness, who has never failed. Now look at the third and last point. Jesus' faithfulness to God proved He was God's Son. My faithfulness to Jesus proves I am God's child. Jesus' faithfulness to God proved that He was God's Son, and in similar fashion, my faithfulness to Jesus proves that I am God's child. Look at the latter part of verse 6, which has caused a lot of consternation on the part of a lot of people. It says, if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. Notice, but Christ was faithful as a son over His house, whose house we are whose house we are if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. Let's just get right to the point because my time's about gone. Is this saying that if you do not hold fast your confidence, if you do not trust Jesus, you can lose your salvation and be kicked out of God's house? No, a thousand times no, it's not saying that. But look at the next statement in your notes. This is what is being said. 
And it's powerful. Continuance in the faith proves the authenticity of my faith. That's what the writer is communicating. It's not that I can lose my salvation. He's saying continuance in the faith is what proves that I'm the real deal, the authenticity of my faith. In other words, do you want to find the proof of someone's faith? Do you know, I've shared this before uh, in our study on the Sermon on the Mount. Do you know, you, I, I'll challenge anybody in this room, you can never find a single place in the Bible where a person is exhorted to go back to their profession of faith to find assurance for their salvation. The Bible always tells you to examine your life now and see if there's the proof, the evidence that God's in your life, that He's moving, working in your life. And it doesn't mean that we don't know failure. It doesn't mean that we do not know sin or temptation. It's, it's, it's just the opposite. In other words, look at the whole of a person's life all the way until the end. And what characterizes that person? See, those who live in the household of faith live under the watchful care of God. But again, they're, they are not immune. I am not immune. You are not immune to sin, to adversity, to persecution, to financial collapse, to relational difficulties, to failure. We do fail. We do fall. Here's the main difference between a person inside God's household and a person outside God's household. The person inside God's household has a high priest who can minister like nobody else. That's the difference. In other words, when the roof caves in, whether the roof caves in because of your own stinking failure or whether it caves in because of of you being mistreated by someone else or just through life's adversities, living in a fallen world, sickness or whatever it might be, when the roof caves in, see, he is the one you can turn to for forgiveness, right? He's the one you can turn to to find grace to persevere the trial. He's the one that you can turn to for provision. He's the one that you can turn to for guidance. He's the one that you can turn to for whatever your need is. We just sang it earlier. He's the great what? I am. He is whatever you need. He's the one we can turn to. And folks, when the roof caves in, And you put your trust in Him, even in the midst of your sin and your failure and difficulty, that validates the authenticity of your faith, of your walk with Him. Look at the next statement in your notes and the last for today. Jesus' faithfulness to me as my high priest enables me to remain faithful to God. Look how the focus is on Him and His ability. Jesus' faithfulness to me as my high priest, as my faithful, merciful high priest who runs to come with aid at the cry of His child, that enables me. And the only thing that enables me to remain faithful to God. See, the key to continuance in faith is not me grunting for more faith, but it's resting in the faithful one. That's the key. See, when the roof caves in on you, let Him, let Jesus be the one you turn to. He's the only one that can take the rubble of your life 
and then rebuild it into a home worthy of His presence and residence. Amen? Father, thank You for this uh, beautiful truth concerning our faithful high priest. Lord, forgive us when we dishonor you by not placing our trust in you. When we fret, when we worry, when we grumble, complain, fall into self-pity, we go on and on and on. Lord, open our eyes to see just how great Jesus is. And then may we run to him and rest under his power, under his faithfulness, knowing faithful is he who calls us, who also will do it. So, Lord, we acknowledge you and you alone are worthy of our trust. And this day, this very day, in whatever circumstance we may be in, we choose to trust you. For it's in Christ's name we do pray. Amen.